Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Many of you may wonder about the natural history of love or the natural history of the senses or what could happen under the full moonlight, either in your own kingdom of, or those of other species on the planet. My next guest has written about those, not only in books, but also in magazines, National Geographic, The New Yorker, The New York Times. She's written a book of poetry about her experiences learning to fly. Her current book is called The Slender Thread, and it's about the experiences both of the natural world in which she lives in upstate New York, and also her experiences throughout the night working as a suicide prevention counselor. Please welcome Diane Ackerman to West Coast Live. Nice to be here again. Uh, in your credits, you think um, not only the suicide prevention center that uh, you worked in uh, in the East, but also the one here in San Francisco that you observed. Is there a difference in the, in the centers of the styles of unhappiness between the East and the West Coasts? You know, that was one of the most fascinating things to discover, that in all the centers that I visited around the country, the callers could have been my callers in upstate New York. I had thought that there would be a different emotional dialect that people would speak in different parts of the country, but not so. Hearts break in the same way. And you have to help them in the same way, too. Yes. Well, not every center is trained exactly the same. Of course, I think we get the best training at my center. Um, but there is a specialized art to listening, as you know so well. Um, and an art to interviewing, and those things combine. So we don't listen in the conventional way. We're not therapists. We don't offer advice, although heaven knows it's tempting from time to time. Um, what we do is listen, and we listen athletically. It's a kind of nuanced listening. What do you mean athletically? We're, it's an engaged listening. So we have to decipher the emotional state of the caller, and maybe a lot of inanimate things, too if there is any kind of threat in the background, or we have to listen for the sound of ice tinkling in a glass, or uh, a child crying, maybe a traffic outside. Uh, our whole world is narrowed to the terrain of listening, and that's the only access that we have to the person who's in trouble. For somebody who spends a lot of time out exploring the world, hanging from cliffs, uh, sleeping in jungles, what was it about spending an overnight you know, in a, in a small room uh, with just a cup of coffee and just occasional calls coming in? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate, I think, in my career. I've been able to create my own astonishment and go to the ends of the earth just to pursue the marvelous. But uh, what I've been doing for the last five years in secret, working at uh, this crisis line, boy, there I found the wildest country of all. Why did you choose to become public with it? For, for quite a while, I had to take an oath of confidentiality. I couldn't tell anyone. So I was busily off in the Amazon or wherever I was writing my books. But the, some of the most important hours of my life and some of the, the greatest revelations were taking place in secret. And when I began to realize how many people that there were out there who were hurting and didn't realize that help was just a phone call away, and how many people would make marvelous volunteers and really love it, but probably foolishly thought, as I did, that you have to be larger than life to do that kind of work, I thought I should go public. So at that point, I joined the board of the organization, which is public, and that allowed me to speak about it for the first time. And do you still work as a counselor? 
Uh, I'm on the board now. I don't counsel in the same place. I counsel in a larger city that isn't too far away. So people who call my home agency won't find me at the other end of the line, but they'll find people just like me and maybe people like themselves. Would you get regular colors? We often did, and that's why Slender Thread uh, unfolds as a kind of novel, because it's set in one calendar year, and in the course of a year, almost everything poignant and dangerous that can happen to a human being prompts a call, and some people don't call just once. Some people become part of a kind of extended family, and uh, every time they call, it's another piece of their story, another chapter. Along the way, you also weave in great detail about the natural world about the behavior of squirrels, about hummingbirds, about your own experiences you know, on eclipse voyages and, and so forth. Um, and I would find myself startled to suddenly be reading a paragraph about somebody in distress calling you and suddenly you're talking about squirrels. And it all made sense in some way. Well, it makes sense in uh, my view of the universe anyway. I don't see human beings as, as separate from the rest of nature. And I think it's dangerous when we try to. The farther we exile ourselves from nature, the more disconnected and fragmented we feel. After all, there was a time when extended families played the role of being confidants, and you always had somebody you could go to. There would be a family member or an elder, someone, if you were in trouble, and crisis was normal. Um, and now, unfortunately, we are so torn apart that we go to therapists, we go to priests. If we're lucky, we have close friends. Uh, we call crisis lines when we're in distress. But I should explain about the squirrels. You're right. Uh, there are an awful lot of squirrels in there. For two years, I had a broken foot that wouldn't heal. I was in a wheelchair for about four months of that time. And so I couldn't go out on an expedition. And I decided I'd bring an expedition to me. So I captured all of the squirrels in my backyard. There are about 50. And uh, I gave them jewelry so that I could tell which ones were which. All the girl squirrels got pink beaded necklaces. All the boy squirrels got blue beaded necklaces and nice little earrings. Did you have to sex them in the way you've sexed alligators? <laughs> uh, sexing alligators, will I ever live that down? For those people uh, who are listening who wonder about how you sex an alligator, I'll just give you one clue. You cannot tell from the outside. Um, but in the case of squirrels, fortunately, you can. We anesthetize them. Uh, and then they woke up with jewelry. <laughs> oh, look! You know, for all I know, it may have conferred some status or advantage <laughs> on them. And then for days afterwards, they would come and stand up at uh, my garden room window where they would plead for nuts. But they looked like Maasai warriors at that point with all of the jewelry. Anyway, it allowed me to study their intimate behaviors and family behaviors. And for some reason, even though squirrels are so familiar to us, nobody had really sat down, tried to figure out what their lives were like. So in the morning, I would study the lives of the squirrels, and sometimes the squirrels would have crises and get depressed and do what humans do. And then at night, I would go down to the crisis center and deal with the human beings. But I was amazed to discover that by doing that, I was right at a crossroads where the natural world and the human world meet, and many of the behaviors are taking place for the same reason. The, um, there's been a, a long time observation that people who keep pets, for instance, can often be emotionally more healthy, uh, that there's something about a connection between the emotional world and, or, or, the, or another species and, and human beings. Of the people who called you, would you ever find out whether they had pets or kept them? Yes, sometimes, uh, sometimes people would call in crisis about a pet. You know, everybody's emotional thermostat is set differently. And so I suppose people think that crisis line counselors 
I have to deal with people who are suicidal all the time, which is not the case. Um, a crisis could be dealing with somebody's mother-in-law or a developmentally disabled person uh, worried about her pet or um, anything, all of the torments, normal torments and conflicts of love, could be almost anything. But learning what the range of predicaments is that human beings get into, that was fascinating in itself. The um, part of the training, I think, also desensitizes, it, it seemed to desensitize people to different issues that would come up, whether it concerned sexuality or other kinds of, of um, what might be considered private issues in people's lives. Yes, we are encouraged to put our own problems on hold when somebody else is in trouble. And sometimes uh, you can be wholly non-judgmental, and then other times you can't. For example, I have a real button that gets pushed when somebody's calling who's racist. It's really hard for me to be neutral in a situation like that. It offends the sense of sanctity that I feel about life and so on. But mainly, I'm pretty good. For example, if a prisoner calls, I make a point of not asking why he's in jail. It's better that I don't know. Uh, because our job is to be maybe the only person in that uh, caller's life at that moment who will take seriously how they're feeling and try to see the world from their perspective. When you were in the, in the wheelchair and, and having to move around and, and watch these squirrels, um, did you also make, I, I, you also made some mazes of some kinds for these squirrels to exercise in? Uh, I put up a squirrel gymnasium. I wanted to see the lengths that squirrels would go to to get one nut. Um, if it had been possible to do this with humans, of course, I would have done it with humans, too, but so much easier with squirrels. And uh, also, this allowed me to see the uh, nether parts of the squirrels so that I could sex them more easily. Uh, so they were always hanging upside down by their toes someplace. In order to get corn cobs, they would have to leap onto a trapeze. That was one of the the gym skills. In another one, there was a Ferris wheel with six corn cobs, and they would have to leap onto the Ferris wheel and somehow hang on while it was going around. And then they would get their corn. And yet another one, um, they would have to crawl onto a bench and sit upright and eat from the table where there was a corn cob. Um, they loved this. They found it challenging. And when they had a problem, was it because they got stuck, they couldn't solve the problem? I mean, you said that they would have problems that seemed to be based in the same reasons that humans would have them. I mean, what? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes people think that when I'm writing about humans, it's kind of a departure for me. But I'm always writing about animals. Humans are just my favorite animal. And the more that you study the behaviors of animals, the more you realize, oh, that's why we do what we do. Are, so, you, are you pleased when a man or a woman sits upright at a table and eats <laughs> something you've fixed? Yes, then I get to say, oh, you animal. Yeah. <laughs> Or create a gymnasium where you can see the human nether parts? And so I, <laughs> it's tempting, I must say. <laughs> um, but in any case, uh, the squirrels would get upset when they would lose status, just as people do, when they would lose uh, attachments, loved ones, and then they would go around mourning. Sometimes they would lose their job as the top squirrel, and they would get depressed. You would watch them and realize they were being depressed. This is so much the case among animals that zookeepers frequently give Prozac to their polar bear. No. Yes, really? yes. Well, there was that polar bear in the um, Central Park Zoo that just paced back and forth for years, you know, in a very small pace, uh, a small place. I suppose he could have been helped by that. Or maybe we would have been helped as observers. It would have been easier on us to see animals suffer less. Well, I'm going to tell you a secret. I hope the polar bear doesn't get miffed with me, but that polar bear is on Prozac, as a matter of fact. Huh. 
And yes, he was, he was doing, uh, he was acting out, I guess is the way psycho folk would describe it. He was doing things like hanging back at the, uh, at the rear of the enclosure and when he would see children, charging them ferociously with his claws out and his mouth open right up to the glass and he, until he would just terrorize them. And then he would pull back and do his equivalent of laughing, you know. So um, he was pacing, and you're right. It was hard for him to be like that. They gave him Prozac. The Prozac works so well in animals, especially in monkeys, uh, for the same reason that it does in us, because there are biological bases for these things. So how did the behavior change? I wish I could tell you that this is now the mellowest polar bear in the world, uh, and that he's taken up guitar and stuff. But um, I don't honestly know, except that he has not been harassing small children, which is something. Well, that's, I guess, something to be said for the Prozac. The, uh, the subtitle of your book is Rediscovering Hope at the Heart of Crisis. Um, the people that you talk to, the squirrels who get dismayed, I mean, is there a, lo a loss of, of hope when they call you? Is part of your job as a counselor to reinstill hope or to, to get them to see that life might be not the best alternative, but it's, it's, it's the best of their choices? We talk to people who are sad, and we talk to people who feel bad. The people who feel sad, let's say because there is a disappointment in their lives or a loss in their lives, that happens to all of us, and that's very different from being depressed. Uh, that when people are depressed, they usually feel bad about themselves, and they have this revisionist version of their past. There is no future. And I think, uh, personally, that what happens biologically is that all their senses get blunted. And normally, you have all of this wonderful, startling sensory stuff coming in. But when you're depressed, er your focus gets very narrow. And uh, you're like in a tunnel. So if I'm talking with someone who's depressed, part of my job is to help them review their resources and their options and put some doors and windows back into that tunnel. The, um, the, the work you do, uh, how, how has it affected your field work as a naturalist? Um, I think that you cannot touch one part of the web without seeing something move far afield, and that everything that I've learned studying the senses came into play uh, as a counselor, and that when I go back out into the field, having studied why things like anxiety would evolve, and why dread, and why violence, and so on, I will be uh, thinking about that too when I'm looking at wild animals. After all, even when I'm writing about humans, uh, or if I'm writing about animals, the journey is always the same. For me, I'm just trying to understand um, how you could start with something like hydrogen in the Big Bang and end up with us, end up with radio shows. Isn't that amazing? Or, to put it in a different way, what the whole experience of life felt like, what it was like in our, our senses and our contemplations, what it thrilled like, what it hurt like. I want to understand the pageant of the human condition. It's a poet's quest. And uh, so that means having a look at all the different facets. And then it also must have resonated with your own life and your own sense of your experience, I mean, your own personal emotional life? I think uh, it helps a lot if you have witnessed the dark night of the soul and survived it, and a great many people have, then probably you're going to want to help others. You know, we read so much about the violence and uh, the dreadful things going on in the news, and there's no question but that violence is a strong pigment on our emotional palate. But what I've been discovering is the extraordinary lengths that people will go to to help absolute strangers and how important altruism is for us too. 
Diane Ackerman. Her book is called A Slender Thread, Rediscovering Hope at the Heart of Crisis, published by Random House. And it's a tour of both the inner and the outer natural world. Thank you very much for being with us on West Coast Live. Lovely to be with you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.